Ken Chang is a writer-producer who has written for Wilfred, Betas, and Sin City Saints. Ken's feature comedy, Easter Sunday, which he wrote and executive produced for Amblin Partners, Ride Back, and Universal, is inspired by the life and comedy of stand-up comedian Joe Coy. Upcoming, he will write and executive produce the half-hour comedy series, House of Chow, for HBO. Ken is also writing and producing a feature adaptation of the New York Magazine article, Chateau Sucker, for Bound Entertainment. Ken Chang, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me, Mia. So we really enjoyed Easter Sunday. You know, at the beginning of COVID, when everyone was sitting around and thinking about how great it would be to leave the house, I was talking to the great Filipino-American cinematographer, I believe you know, Matthew Libatique, about what- I certainly do. Is he in your crab club? I don't know. If... He is not. He is not. I would, we would love to have him. In fact, he was- very early on in in the pre-production process of, of making this movie, he was, frankly, my number one choice to try to hire as a cinematographer. Of course, that didn't happen, and we were quite happy with the cinematographer, Joe Collins, who worked on our movie. However, Matthew is a bit of a legend in town, especially among Asian-American creatives. Oh, completely. Well, anyway, at the beginning of COVID, we were talking about his dream projects, you know, when we all couldn't leave the house. And I said, well, would we ever see a Filipino story on screen, major studio production like you've made? And he said, well, it'd have to be a comedy. It would have to have, like, he listed off all these things. And that's exactly what you've done. You and the team at Crab Club and Joe Coy, and you've created this in Easter Sunday. Yes. It was a confluence of very fortunate events, the that this movie was produced. And as you pointed out before we began talking, it is a bit of an anomaly. It's quite unprecedented that, first of all, that a major Hollywood film studio has produced a comedy in the year 2022, which they don't get made very often anymore at this size or scale. And secondly, that movie centers a minority family of any sort, but specifically of a Filipino-American family with a Filipino-American leading man. All of these things add to the sort of historical nature of the movie, for lack of a better description, and, and that's not lost upon me, but also adds to the fact that it's such a crazy experience now having put the movie out into the world to see reactions and now that it's out of our hands uh, it's up to the world to receive it or not <laughs> you know so that's the process we're undertaking at the moment well it doesn't surprise me you know it just i feel like there's this metaphor that you have in, in the story that halo halo and it seems <laughs> like that's a great metaphor for the whole script because there's just so much in it so many flavors and colors and so it doesn't surprise me at all that i believe it was greenlit by steven spielberg after reading the first draft of the script it was it was quite surreally for myself, obviously, having been the person to write that first draft of the script, but also without going into the boring details of how Hollywood often works, that just simply doesn't happen in any, typically in any sense for a feature film coming from a major studio because the process of what's called development in Hollywood is often very laborious, requires many, many people, creative and otherwise, and usually takes quite a long time. And certainly quite a number of drafts of, of a screenplay before, you know, a, a studio is typically willing to commit the amount of dollars it takes to make a movie of this size and this scale to that cause. So 
but it is a testament, I believe, to the enthusiasm that a lot of people behind the scenes had for Joe Coy as a potential leading man and movie star. And I'd like to take some small amount of pride in in the fact that it, I think it speaks to the quality of the screenplay that I turned in. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that you pack that all in because you have moments of kind of stand up in kind of an odd place in a church um, around Easter Sunday. You have a lot of star turns from fellow Crab Club co-founder, you know, Jimmy O. Yang, Tiffany Hedish. I mean, just let's talk about the great cast. Sure. You've really developed characters for all of them. Yeah, the process of conceiving the movie was quite collaborative, you know, with the origin story of this movie goes back about three, three and a half years when Joe Coy happened to be having lunch at a sushi restaurant and was approached by the now producer of our film, Dan Lin, who is quite a influential producer in Hollywood. And the two of them got to talking about a collaboration and coincidentally, Joe happened to have been called into a meeting at Amblin, which, as you probably know, is the studio and production company that Steven Spielberg founded in, I believe, the late 70s, early 80s. So these two things, again, as I mentioned earlier, just a very, very fortunate confluence of events. I was interested in developing a, a movie around Joe as well. Steven Spielberg had seen Joe's stand-up special uh, on Netflix, I believe while on break from shooting West Side Story at the time. And just fell in love with Joe as a stand-up, as many millions of others have around the world, and became really interested in developing an idea for him to star in. Simultaneously, Dan Lin asked myself, my partner and co-founder of Crab Club, as well as our third partner, Jessica Gao, who is also a very successful TV writer and showrunner, if he could host the next dinner in this dinner series, a dinner party we had been throwing called Crab Club, which... For lack of a better description, it was just an opportunity for particularly Asian American creatives, because there are so few of us working in Hollywood, to gather over literally a dinner of Dungeness crab that we prepare, that we cook. One of the things we all haven't gotten is that beyond working in Hollywood as writers, directors, producers, is that we all like to cook quite a bit. And so we began this dinner party, I would say six years ago in which whenever the price of Dungeness Crab hit a low enough threshold at the Asian supermarket, a text message would go out to a thread, almost like a bat signal, indicating that it was time to get, gather for dinner. And so we started this dinner series really as just an, as a means for creatives in the community, Asian American Hollywood community, to gather, commiserate, frequently talk very privately and within a cone of silence about all of the toxic individuals we've come across in this business. And that sort of grew organically into what essentially became an incubator of creative ideas. You know, inevitably when you gather a group of people who work in the creative arts, that setting becomes a bit of a salon, right? And ideas would bounce back and forth between us. And so it was growing naturally into a really, we thought, fun and productive event. And so Dan offered to host one for us. And now in retrospect, we realize there's a bit of brilliant producing on his end because at that dinner that he hosted, he invited Joe, 
whom, as I mentioned, he had already begun talking to about a movie idea. And what they needed at the time was essentially a creative team, a writer specifically to mold this loose premise of a story that he had been thinking up in his head. And so Joe came to dinner, came to Crab Club dinner, sat opposite myself and Jessica and Jimmy and Dan, and we just hit it off. And one of the first things that Joe and I specifically bonded over it was a shared upbringing in the Filipino community and Filipino culture. Now, it's important to note, because I think this has come up a few times, that I'm ethnically Chinese. However, my parents come from the Philippines, were born in the Philippines. My grandparents immigrated during the war as part of a wave of, you know, as sort of the wave of, of Chinese diasporic migrants during the war all over Southeast Asia. And so my folks landed in the Philippines. And so as a child, I spent quite a bit of time in the Philippines, going to school in the Philippines, living in the Philippines. Tagalog was my simultaneous first and second language <laughs> Chinese. So that was something that Joe and I bonded over very quickly. And it became apparent that I was the right person to partner with Dan and Joe and Amblin on creating a story that would serve as a vehicle for Joe to star in for this movie. And that's sort of how it all, how it all began. And again, that was that was in 2019. And shortly after that dinner, the combined team of Crab Club and Joe Coy and Dan Lin went into Amblin. I pitched them this story, this loose story that I saw set in my old sort of hometown of Daly City, which many people don't know is, I refer to as the sort of unofficial heart of the Filipino diaspora in America. It's it was at one point the, I believe, had the most Filipino Americans per capita in the United States. And it's very much an enclave still to this day for the community. And they pitched them this story that was, I remember quite clearly when describing the movie, it was Friday, the movie Friday, the comedy starring Ice Cube and Chris Tucker meets It's a Wonderful Life, <laughs> starring Jimmy Stewart, uh, written and directed by Frank Capra. Two very different movies, obviously. But I think two movies that captured a sense of a place and time within a very condensed time period, obviously, and captured the essence of a community. And so that was the pitch. And so early in 2020, I signed on to write the movie. And then the world was beset by a global pandemic. And COVID, you know, forced everyone in the world to go into quarantine of some sort and that was the venue and circumstances under which I wrote this movie under a quarantine with an infant child and a wife who also was working full time and no childcare help. So we somehow made it work. And now here we are. Oh, that's interesting to know. I mean, I sort of got the timeline, but knowing that that was done during COVID because there's a lot of the noise of family. So I imagine you're writing and everything is around and everything informed the movie, all of that. All of it informed the movie, for sure. And, and there's a beautiful, I don't want to give it away, but it, there's a great ensemble in each, you know, I don't feel like anyone is there, which we're so used to seeing, just an Asian person there as like a flash by, oh, I fulfilled that quota. And so it was just, and, and several times I had watching, I had to remind myself, you know, because I'm just enjoying it, you know, I'm not enjoying it because there's representation. I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm just enjoying this. And I'm thinking, well, it's just special, a Filipino story on screen, because how often does that happen? 
Mm-hmm. I, that's wonderful to hear. I mean, frankly, if nothing else, I, what I want people to take away, what I hope people take away from watching this movie is that families, and it may sound generic and trite at this point, but families are the same across cultures, ethnicities, nations, and nationalities. And I think what I hope is that people who watch this movie see their own families reflected in the Valencia families sort of struggles and conflicts and hijinks and laughter and, and whatnot. I actually believe that is the magic of Joe Coy's stand-up as a whole. And part of the reason why he's developed such a, just an enormous following around the world is that certainly as it was the case for me, when I first saw his stand-up specials, I saw my own family reflected in his stories. Now, obviously he and I, as I mentioned, have quite a lot in common culturally, but certainly the, he's not selling out arenas once, twice, three times over all over the world solely on the premise that Filipino Americans or Filipino diasporic individuals from all over the world are the only ones making up his audience. I, that's simply not true. And so I think there is a universality to his storytelling and to his comedy that I know I was trying to replicate or to reflect in the writing and in the storytelling. But more importantly, I do believe very much in this maxim that there is universality in specificity. And so, you know, the movie centering on a Filipino-American family, specifically in this enclave of Daly City, California, is highly specific. The use of this very Filipino dessert, halo halo, as a metaphor is a very specific and deliberate choice that I just don't believe makes the movie inaccessible. I actually think it's quite the opposite. You know, there is a version of Halo Halo across every culture, right? That that people of that culture relate to and sort of respond to, I think, in a similar way that Filipinos respond to that dessert. So again, I think the more we drill down into our own unique experiences, the more people who don't necessarily share those experiences the more they can take away from it and apply to their own lives. So I think that's the case. I think that it's not tried at all when they're living characters, when they're populated with living characters, which Easter Sunday is full of. It's just very heartening to see. We won't give away many of the plots, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we can relate to bickering families, the richness of that life. And uh, we want to, of course, speak about, you know, another work across Crab Club. It's very exciting projects. One, you know, the great, I don't know if this is the first one you'd want to talk about, but this one sparked my imagination. You should talk about that. The great Chinese art house. Is it a yeah, comedy? Or is it, yeah. <laughs> I want to know. If yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's a publicly comedy. announced. It's a publicly announced project. So I'm absolutely free to talk about it to a certain extent. It's so the great Chinese art house is a feature profile that originally appeared in GQ magazine several years ago and details a series of real life art crimes that took place throughout Europe, London, Paris, Norway, Copenhagen. And at the center of the of these art crimes were essentially just Chinese priceless Chinese relics from throughout history, most of which are believed to have been looted over the course of many, many years of imperial forces stepping into China. And the article goes into various theories as to who or why who is perpetrating these crimes and why, with no conclusive sort of evidence to suggest one answer or another. But I think that that leaves a lot open to the imagination. And so we have 
partnered with John M. Chu, the director of Crazy Rich Agents and In the Heights and Warner Brothers to adapt that article into a full-length feature film that we envision as sort of a fun action adventure, a heist adventure with comedic elements, of course, since the three of us at Crab Club all come from comedy backgrounds. But, you know, we think that's going to be a very fun movie, uh, ensemble movie that, frankly, people of color and Asian Americans or Asian diaspora specifically, individuals from the Asian diaspora, haven't been able to participate in, at least on the Hollywood level. And so we think it's going to be a fun opportunity for us to tell a different kind of representative story, not, not necessarily one that goes into sort of notions of struggle or anything like that but something a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun that has some action and adventure elements to it as well. Now, you said that they didn't know for sure whether, I mean, it's speculated that Chinese government is behind it. I hope, or some involvement, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Chinese government would take great offense to any implication, I think, that they are financing or sanctioning international criminal activity. If you even consider it to be criminal activity, depends on your point of view, of course. The repatriation of looted looted art, I think has become a very, uh, not popular, but become a very sort of timely topic in the world. I'm sure you've seen many museums across the globe, specifically in Europe and North America, have begun the process of preemptively repatriating what they believe to be looted artifacts to nations in the African continent, to South America, to Southeast Asia. So I think it's a long overdue process, to be honest. And if if a spate of heists and, and art crimes <laughs> from five to 10 years ago helped precipitate that, then you know what? I, I don't feel too badly for those museums that were robbed. You know, you might inadvertently, because this does happen when people see the making of films, they kind of get clues. <laughs> you kind of like, you put forward thoughts and they follow them. No, because just very briefly, I did interview the director of the Acropolis Museum and they've been waiting forever. And mm-hmm. of course, it would be hard for them to do that heist because they're so big, the Elgin or the Parthenon marbles or however. You... <laughs> of course. It, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I certainly am not smart enough to devise a heist in the movie to... That, that could penetrate that museum, so. Young Lin wants to come in to ask sure. follow up on that. Hi, Ken. Uh, uh, I'm Yoli. I just want to ask you, like, it, it seems like it's the first time for you to adapt something like a crime like this big and you've never done it before. So I want to ask if that will appear to be a challenge to you, the process of making that script. Yeah, it is a challenge. Two of the projects I'm currently working on are adaptations true crime, for lack of a better description, true crime cases. This one that we're discussing, The Great Chinese Art Heist, but I'm also adapting a feature version of an article that appeared in New York Magazine in 2012 called Chateau Sucker, which details the largest case of wine fraud in American history. The case has been documented in lots of other publications. There's a documentary called Sour Grapes about this case specifically, and it centers on what is essentially the most unlikely figure that you could imagine in this specific world of wine collection and specifically rare wine collection, which is a world only the elite of the wealthiest 1% can participate in because of the prices involved. And at the time, the most influential wine collector in the world 
was a 26-year-old Chinese immigrant from Indonesia living in Arcadia, California, named Rudy Kurniawan. And so what unfolds from that case is the most bizarre and interesting and frankly, I find quite fun case of con artistry and counterfeiting and other sort of less savory elements. But at the center is this very unique and talented individual who, again, was an anomaly in his world, right? And so I think part of what I'm attracted to in in stories are those elements of uniqueness that I just can't, I couldn't wrap my head around in the real world, even though these cases do happen in the real world. And often when they center a person of color as the lead in the story, that makes it all the more appealing to me. And it's the reason why I was so excited to get involved in both of these. But it is a challenge to answer your, your question, Youngling. Mentioned to me, as I'm not a clever, I don't find myself, I don't consider myself to be a very clever person who can devise you know, intricate plots and schemes to rob museums. And so that is quite a challenge having to write around that. Fortunately, on that specific project, I'm working with my Crab Club partners, Jessica Gao and Jimmy O. Yang, to write that movie as a trio. And uh, it's been, I can say confidently, it's been one of the most fun experiences I've had creatively, just because I get to work so closely with two of my closest friends in the business, both of whom are geniuses in their own right. Yeah, you have quite a a talent trio. Well, and it it goes beyond so many great collaborators. And those two stories, it seems to share this thread, not just being both kind of ingenious crimes, but also the question behind them is, it's a crime or is it a crime? Because you kind of... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Chateau Sucker, the term victimless crime gets thrown about quite a bit. I absolutely believe this qualifies because the people who were quote unquote being victimized are again, some of the wealthiest people in the world, most of whom were spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on something as I don't want to call it even esoteric. That's not even the right word, but wine, rare, rare, fine wine is something that most people do not get to enjoy. And A lot of these people, frankly, were hoarding bottles of rare fine wine for their collection and for their personal sellers. And so the fact that this, again, at the time he was 26, he did this over a course of 10 years from the age of 20, 22 to 32 when he was arrested. I don't, I, I don't feel a ton of sympathy for the people who were built out of however much money Rudy took them for, especially since some of the figures involved have quite a bit of notoriety in other aspects, for example. The Koch brothers were among Rui's victims. Can't say I feel any sympathy for them, uh, considering their place in American culture and politics. So, you know, in the case of the great Chinese art heist, again, we're talking about museums predominantly in Europe and North America who have gained access to antiquities, art, and whatnot through a variety of means that history probably would not look kindly upon in a lot of respects. So, uh, I don't feel terrible about that either, quite frankly. I'm quite sympathetic to the cause of repatriation in general, especially when it comes to repatriation towards countries that have previously been the victims of imperialism or colonization. I don't cry for any any of those affected parties. 
Yeah. And particularly, we just know it belongs in the country. They're the central symbols of the country. I mean, you know, take exactly. it small, but the central symbol. So the story of self, it's so important to join those together. Speaking of your other, the house of child. Now, this is an art, food, the art of food. This is something we can all relate to. It's not Absolutely. a shelf. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about your family and your upbringing and yeah. how that informs this writing process. So I have a, the, the project you referenced specifically, House of Chow, is a half hour TV project that I have set up at the network HBO. And that is loosely the general description of that project is that a, a pair of highly dysfunctional 20 something Chinese American siblings, the children of immigrants who have grown up in their parents' very sort of tacky and outdated westernized Chinese restaurant come to take over that restaurant and decide to use it as a vehicle for their own sort of search for fulfillment in life, which is ironic for the characters because it's the place that both of them sort of dreaded having to be at when they were children. You know, a lot of that is taken from my own personal sort of family history as well. You know, I think it's funny. I was talking to another writer recently and we were talking about the process of creativity apropos to this conversation. And I think there's this belief that creativity requires our ability to think outward, right? And extrapolate beyond our own experiences and think of the world in imaginative new ways, which is true in a lot of cases, but I also sort of believe in creativity as the ability to access inward and sort of look introspectively at our own personal experiences and mine those experiences in ways that aren't necessarily one-to-one copies of our lives, but that we can extrapolate themes and lessons and comedy, drama, humor, whatever, into new works, right? So certainly that was the case for me with Easter Sunday that we were just discussing. And that's also the case for me on this project, Pastor Chow, because I, I take quite a bit of my family's experience growing up in California and specifically my brothers, my older brothers, who was a very successful chef and restaurant owner in the Bay Area. A lot of that is coming from our own experiences dealing with, you know, growing up in what is a, very much like a blue collar environment, a restaurant, which is, you know, when we were growing up was not seen in the sort of romantic or highly desirable way that restaurant life or the restaurant business is today. This was before the era of celebrity chefs or all the many ways the profession has been glamorized in the media. And so I wanted to tell a story set in a restaurant that was the opposite of what we typically see in the media today with whether it's high-end chefs competing on reality shows or stories of sort of high-minded Michelin-starred chefs who are often white <laughs> in other forms of scripted entertainment running restaurants. As most people, I think most people know, the restaurant industry in America is by and large a very blue collar industry dominated mostly by not just people of color, but immigrants. I think the figure is something like 85% of the workforce in the American restaurant industry are either people of color or recent immigrants. So that's not, those aren't people that we get to see very often in the more glamorous depictions of the restaurant world. And so that that's where I wanted to focus our show, how second generation Chinese Americans grapple with that identity while living in 
modern day Los Angeles and what it means to be Asian American through that lens as well. Food, as you mentioned, is very important to me. Uh, it seems it, like you it, cut your best deals. <laughs> I, it, it, it truly, my ability to cook is responsible for as many successes in my career as my ability to write, it seems like. So I don't mind it at all because it's a skill that I developed over many years that, and that I take quite proudly from my parents and my brothers. I'm just imagining as you're, I, not, I don't like the expression picking the brains, but you know, it's a filtering process. You're listening to, you're visiting your brother's kitchen, you're perhaps mm-hmm. you're food off, off the, the countertop. And if not- I've been doing that my whole life. <laughs> It's it's a beautiful process. Yeah, I was going to ask you some any other interesting stories that you have when you are growing up in the kitchen. But I just have another one that when I came to the United States, what I eat, I feel like it's very different from what I eat, eat back in China. So how do you see? How do you tell the yeah. difference? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the paradigm shift that we've seen in the food industry, food as culture in America. There was a time when I was a kid when the more traditional food of, you know, my family and my ancestry was not something that could really be outwardly shared in as sort of wide a fashion as it could be now, right? And I think that was a product of a lot of things, xenophobia, (laughs) but I think one of the wonderful things that's happened in the last 20 years, specifically in food is the widening of the American palate, culturally speaking, where we can drill down again, it's specificity, right? Like that seems to be a common theme in art, whether that the art you're talking about is movie making or food. Specificity is welcomed now to the extent that, you know, for example, I live in a section of Los Angeles called the San Gabriel Valley, where within, I'm not quite sure what the size of the area is, but within this area, we have food representative of almost every region of China that I can think of. Highly specific, <laughs> specific food, whether it's food from Yunnan or Hong Kong or Shanghai or up and down the regions of China. And that's the case for other areas of Asia as well. In greater Los Angeles, Latin American food is very well represented in this area across different countries and regions. And that's just not something that I think was possible 20, call it 20, 30 years ago. So I don't think there is as much a need for the, I suppose, the translation of traditional foods to American palates that was required back then to succeed. I don't think that sort of translation is necessary now because I think we're at a time where we can present our food as is or as we like it and diners can take it or leave it. As we're seeing, most diners choose to take it because that food is delicious and that food has merit and is valid. And we shouldn't always have to sort of preemptively alter that which is, you know, close to us or that which we want to create for under the expectation that somebody's not going to like it unless we do that. Right. That it's funny. That was the case for me as a writer as well. Early in my career, I tell this story to younger writers almost as a cautionary tale. But when I began in this business, the first script I ever wrote was essentially a semi-autobiographical comedy about my early 20s living with friends in an apartment building in San Francisco. And the main character, Danny, was me for all intents and purposes. I gave him all my best and worst traits, my insecurity, 
my tendency to make self-deprecating jokes, my love of specific sports teams. So this main character was essentially me. Um, but there was one sort of embarrassing and glaringly obvious way that this character wasn't me. And that was that Danny's last name was Jones. And I turned a character based on me into what I described in the script as a 20-something, only good-looking to his mom, Mark Ruffalo type. Now, you can see me on the Zoom, yeah. I'm not any of those things. I'm none of those things. And so when I first got to LA and was attempting to make a career in Hollywood as a screenwriter, I preemptively whitewashed myself, for lack of a better description. And, you know, who's to say whether that was the right or wrong decision? It, that script that I referenced, it got me my start in this business. It won me a writing competition. It got me general meetings with Hollywood executives and agents and whatnot. And it eventually got me my first job as a television writer. Would that have been the case if I had made, you know, the lead character's name Danny Chang? I don't know. Maybe. But again, those are the decisions we make at the time because we think that's what's going to best aid us in our goals. And fortunately, I don't think that's the case anymore, especially in entertainment with the proliferation of scripted content, of traditional television, streaming television, movies, et cetera. There's so many more avenues and so much more room for highly specific material and intimate material that I think creatives, especially creatives of color, are, are allowed to be themselves a little bit more than they used to be. Yeah, definitely. You haven't, you don't have to do that watering down. I mean, that's why you also have this crab club because you're not just writing the content, you're producing, you're involved in financing, so important. And, and I think that's a really important story. It's probably, I don't want to say it, probably you made the right decision. It's sad the way we deliberately whitewash ourselves. So just bringing out these stories makes it possible for those who might be along the creative spectrum can see a place for them. Because to think about how many creative individuals just haven't followed that path because it's thought, well, there's not a chance statistically. Yeah, I, I will say you know, there's, there's also in terms of screenwriting, there's a difference between a piece of material that gets you a job and a piece of material that gets made, right? Those are two different things. And, and while I am grateful that I think writers of color today no longer have to do this sort of preemptive whitewashing that I did, or certainly have more courage than I did at the time to, to not choose that path. That's not necessarily the case for material that hopes to get made today. There are still plenty of obstacles towards getting stories featuring people of color specifically made in Hollywood. Even though there are all those various new outlets and paths for that material to find audiences that I just mentioned, you know, Easter Sunday, as I mentioned, is an anomaly because it gets, it is a major studio produced feature that centers a Filipino American family. That's not to say that there weren't compromises necessary in order to get that movie made, both creatively and culturally, without getting into too many details. Those are things that we as writers and producers still have to grapple with because frankly, the people who are greenlighting these projects and financing them, essentially signing the checks required to make these large scale productions happen. They all, a lot of them still fall within a very specific demographic of which I am not a member. Uh, and so there is still what I call 
Asian America 101 that has to happen, which is like this very basic education that we have to impart upon the gatekeepers and decision makers in Hollywood. It's a bit of, you know, when you look at it in, in that respect, it is a bit of additional labor that we as creatives of color have to undertake fairly or unfairly, probably unfairly, if I'm being frank, but it is required. And is there a day where we don't have to do that additional sort of emotional labor and creative labor to validate our own experiences and validate our own stories for the sake of financing? I hope so. Uh, we're not quite there yet though. So what is going on everyone? I hope you are enjoying this great conversation so far. I did just want to take a pause and share my own thoughts on the work that Ken has contributed to the Asian American and Filipino American creative community. Since watching Eastern Sunday and listening to Ken talk about his journey, I've taken some time to ruminate, reflect, and really absorb everything because this film and everything that Ken stands for and all the work they've done means more to me than just, you know, the average cinema goer. When I went and saw Easter Sunday, there were a lot of emotions. For me, it's so special to finally see my culture and the stories of my people on the biggest stage, a stage that has historically excluded not just Filipinos or Asian Americans, but people of different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, and sexual orientation, the list goes on. This is a huge step towards the diversity and inclusion that we want to see. You know, specifically for those who I share a similar identity with and aspirations with. You know, among many things, I think Easter Sunday represents the idea of possibility. The permission to pursue our creative dreams and goals with all our might. This is for the young Filipino kids who have taken that leap of faith to vault past cultural expectations and norms on what a viable career should look like and have instead chosen to follow their heart and pursue a future where their true dreams are actualized. Now I can't help but feel so proud and grateful, proud because people like Ken have worked so hard to get the opportunity to show the world, the talent, the stories and the extraordinary gifts that my people have possessed all this time. I am immensely grateful for the paths that all these trailblazers are setting because it is through their work and their light that will allow people like myself to someday share our own gifts with the world. Hi there, it's Yoli. Just pausing here for another few minutes to share some reflection of mine. Though I'm glad to hear that Chinese cuisine here in America has received more love and so as to attract more people to be willing to reproduce food of more authentic taste. The social problem reflected behind is serious. Just as Ken said, it is more of a question of whether people want you to behave in the way that they expect you to be, or as you really are. Things may be heading towards a better place, but on this issue, personally, I think more attention and confrontation will still need to take place before the issue is resolved and Asians and Asian Americans are finally seen and fully demarginalized in the United States. Actually, I want to shed light on Ken's other two works, House of Tao and The Great Chinese Art Heist. Honestly speaking, it's hard for me to position myself as an Asian American and see the problems they are facing now since I'm a native Chinese. I was born and raised in Shanghai, and I spent almost all my life there. 
but I do relate to the harsh parenting thing because I was raised that way as well, and I believe it's an even more severe problem faced by Asian American children as they have to take on the extra burden of representing a certain group of people in a mixed society. I've long heard that there exists higher suicide rates among Asian Americans, so thankfully there's a happy place for them to be seen and heard. As people like Ken and his crap club friends are approaching these issues in a light-hearted way and bringing joy to cross-cultural divides, the subject of the Great Chinese Archives is a rather serious topic for us Chinese because those Asian cultural artifacts were stolen from us, but now they have to be purchased from auction houses or individuals so as to be returned to China. It was really heartbreaking to see things going that way as an arts administrator. Because we were taught to respect art in all the ways, and apparently these atrocities against art have nothing to do with respect. Though my concentration was on music, but I appreciate all kinds of art. You can tell by the delicacy of an artwork how much the creator has devoted for it. So, as audiences, keeping works of art according to the wishes of the artists is also respect for art. Personally, I'm hoping that people would take it seriously. Even though it will be a light-hearted comedy action movie, and I'm really looking forward to how Ken will balance its seriousness against comedy elements. Now let's get back to the conversation. Well, it's nice to see those like Albert Chang at Amazon, and、mm-hmm. you know that that's really great. Among others, I'm just wondering what it was like to be in those writing rooms because you know. Seasoned writers have told me that those rooms are tough, and they're not from an Asian. I'm like George Pelicanos told me those rooms are tough.、Mm-hmm. You know, these how get across the story. There's another kind of way, you know, to find your place and get your voice out. Yeah, there. So I agree with George Pelicanos, a, a genius. So that makes me feel a little smarter in comparison. Writers' rooms are very difficult environments to work, specifically comedy writers' rooms. However, they are also some of the most rewarding work environments that you can find yourself in, and I, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of detail as to what makes them both difficult and rewarding. My first day in a TV writers' room was my first day in Hollywood, working in any capacity. I never went through the assistant route or PA route that a lot of fledgling writers undertake, fortunately. And so, my first day in the room, a very small room on a very small TV production. Six writers. Not only was I the only Asian American writer in the room, I was the only writer of color. Period, and that's been the case in almost every room I've worked in. I think that has become less prevalent of an experience for younger writers today. But in the days that I was coming up, in the early 2010s and into the mid 2010s, even finding writers' rooms that were heavily diversified in terms of their ethnic and demographic makeup was a rare experience. Most writers of color that I know are used to being the only fill in the blank in the room. Another reason why Crab Club formed was to commiserate over those shared experiences, and so it is tough. We're often writing for showrunners who don't have similar life experiences to us, and often working with other writers who have extremely different life experiences from us. And the writers' room in general is a tough environment because it is one in which. You are forced to put yourself out there on a daily basis, whether you're pitching stories, story turns, whatever it may be. You are in a room with people who are generally the smartest people, if not the funniest people, 
in their own lives, right? So you're now getting the top 1% of funniest and smartest people <laughs> in a room together. And there are only however many episodes, 10 episodes uh, of television that you're trying to make. And not every idea is, is going to be a hit. And so in a comedy room specifically, all you're trying to do is make your coworkers laugh, which if you've ever tried to tell a joke to somebody, you know, there's a bit of anxiety that goes into that experience. So that's what makes it competitive, frankly. And that's what makes it tough be, that there's a balance you have to strike of being productive in the room and being funny and being smart and making sure your showrunner sees value in your contributions, right? But it's also rewarding for those exact same reasons, because when you do tell a joke that makes everyone laugh, boy, there's, I don't know if there's a better feeling than that. Or when a story idea that you pitch to the room becomes an episode and you get to see that process from ideation to production and completion. For me, there have been no better professional outcomes or experiences that, that I've gotten to participate in. So that's what makes that process rewarding. But, you know, Mr. Pollock is, is correct. It, it is a tough, competitive environment, oftentimes requiring you to sit in a room for 10 hours a day with, again, some of the most incisive people you've ever met. And, and there's a lot of ego checking and soul bearing that happens in a writer's room, which is why you know, every writer's room is under a, a cone of silence, generally speaking, because the things that are discussed in a writer's room aren't always and actually most often are not fit for polite conversation. That's why we also like seeing the behind the scenes stories in the writer's room because all this uh -huh. stuff comes out. I'm going to tell a quick story. I'm going to steal some time. Please. I, I think that also the added difficulty is because there are many stereotypes laid on Asians generally or Asian Americans. And yeah. one is that you're not expected to be funny. You're not expected to have a sense of humor. I remember I was invited by good friends to a Shabbat dinner and you're talking with friends and you know, I was happy to be in their circle. And I was, I was having a conversation on the way home and I was thinking, you know, because they're Jewish. So I was saying Jewish people do not own the sense of humor. And anyway, I wrote a story about a Jewish guy who his sense of humor was eating up. It was destroying his marriage. He couldn't stop laughing. He couldn't stop making other people laugh and alienating people. And his wife said, you've got to sell it. You've got to get it out of the house. And a Chinese, because I was just thinking about this story. I was stealing it from the story. No, please. This Chinese immigrant saw an opportunity, saw the ad in the paper, Jewish sense of humor for sale, and, you know, bought it, and he made money, he turned it, and he put it to work, started opening Yiddish centers, all this stuff. But it was like, I know what you mean, like permission to be funny. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that speaks to something that is very pervasive in comedy specifically. And it's this, I think, incorrect misconception that comedy is an objective art form. And it's not. Comedy is subjective to your experiences. You know, the Jewish comedy specifically, the, the tradition of Jewish and Jewish American comedy specifically. I'm obviously a big fan of it, but it is very specific to customs and traditions of Jewish American life that, for example, Chinese Americans, Mexican Americans, Latin Americans, Latino Americans aren't necessarily familiar with or have had experience with, right? And so our Catskills comedians funny to Chinese immigrants or to Mexican immigrants? I don't know. Perhaps not. But that doesn't make them any less funny. Same could be said of our own experiences and the in-jokes that we share in our own unique cultural heritages. My family, the members of my family are constantly telling jokes, mostly about each other, which is probably, it's not unusual that I ended up doing this for a living. <laughs> but 
I don't know that those jokes would necessarily translate to what's considered a mainstream audience, right? And mainstream is, as you know, is just coded language for for white, at least it is in America. But that doesn't make my family any less funny, right? I go home and I can't stop laughing. I don't know that would necessarily be the case for a stranger walking into my household and hearing some of those jokes that are, again, a mix of English, Chinese, and Tagalog, right? I do think that is a misconception among comedy fans and comedians specifically that needs to be ironed out a little bit because comedy is not an objective art form. It is highly, highly subjective. And I think that the sooner we realize that, the more we open ourselves up to other sort of comedy of different styles from different backgrounds as well. In terms of the stand-up, your experience has been as a writer, creator. Have you, exactly. there's another Ken Chang out there, but it's not you, right? There is. It's not okay. me. There's, it's not me. I know who you're talking about. I've been mistaken for this other Ken Chang uh, a couple times now. I believe the other, <laughs> the other Ken Chang is a British stand-up comedian who I've been told is quite funny. I've never met my doppelganger in the British comedy scene, but I look forward to one day meeting this person. And so you're basically, you're at the desk more so, but have you done some stuff? I have not. I have not. It does. It does scare me. I have a lot of respect for stand-up comedians because going up on stage and risking failure every night in such an immediate way requires quite a bit of emotional courage for sure. Uh, You, Jimmy, my business partner and friend is a stand-up comedian as well. And he goes up on stage in front of 500, 1,000 people and risks failure every night. It's a skill. It's not a skill I developed or I'm looking to develop. I prefer my comedy on the page and sort of on the screen, but I certainly have a lot of respect for, for people who have that ability, who have that courage to go up there on stage and do that. I think it's definitely some kind of context sport. And it is. Kudos to them. You know, so just in closing, as you think about the future, you know, the importance of the arts, some of the teachers and life lessons that have been important to you, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Wow. What I would like young people to know is that creativity is, and the creative arts doesn't just have to be a pipe dream, right? Specifically for young people of color who may or may not have been told or taught that it is a viable career path or life path for you. You know, I think as children of immigrants, it certainly was the case for me. We are steered towards careers or choices that emphasize stability and risk aversion and and things of that nature, which are all very valid. And, you know, our parents or grandparents didn't pick up their lives and move halfway around the world so that their kids could go without dental insurance <laughs> and a 401k. Then I think a 401k, an 800 FICO score are very worthy milestones for the children of immigrants to strive towards. However, what I've found is that it is just as viable a career path to find something you love that you can be good at and pursue that as a career because you know, even if we're talking purely in economic terms, the best of the best people in any field are often the best rewarded, right? If you can be good at something that not a lot of other people are good at, more often than not, that's going to lead to a pretty, pretty stable <laughs> and career for you. So I think to the extent that young people can pursue the creative arts as a passion, as a point of passion first, and 
develop the requisite skills to make that a profession. I think those are all very worthwhile pursuits. And in terms of what people should remember, it is, again, going back to what I was saying earlier about accessing that which is within you and being introspective, remembering the stories of our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and uncles and the struggles that they have, the struggles and the joy, by the way. I don't always want to frame the stories of our forebears in the context of struggle. Although, uh, you know, a lot of the, especially Asian Americans have had to deal with that. There's a lot of joy to be found in those stories as well. And I hope that those are stories that are passed on and remembered because, you know, as is the case in our movie, it's about the moments that we are able to share with our family in which we experience happiness and laughter and joy that are most important, at least to me. And so I hope that's something that we can reflect in our storytelling moving forward as well. You know, I think we've seen a lot of stories framed around the, the noble struggle, which is what we call it. And I hope we can start diversifying our storytelling a little bit so that we can share a little bit more of the happy pleasures and joys that we experience as families and immigrants as well. Yeah, you've certainly shared your joy with us and given us a lot to think about. Thank you, Ken Chang, for sharing your creative insights and to the team at Crab Club for telling important stories and for all you do to raise voices and bring multidimensional characters to screen full of humor, joy, complexity, and depth. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Yangling. It's a pleasure speaking to both of you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yongling Hao, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this podcast were Yongling Hao and Andy Lopez. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Feigenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.